Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always, I am joined by my old friends, Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. We are... Here, I'm in my car again during this strange self-isolation quarantine period or whatever. Tim, you're in Seattle. Heidi's in Colorado. What do you guys, uh, where do you guys record? Is, is anything different for you during, to, as far as recording goes during this period? No, everything is it's exactly the same, the same for me. Although I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a quick story about something that happened while I was in my recording spot yesterday on a conference call. I looked out the back window of my cottage and I saw the oldest. So I live on the property of my friends, Andrew and Marianne, and I see their oldest son step out onto the back patio, followed by a little wisp of smoke. I'm like, oh, somebody burned something on the stove. This is a hot story. What's that? (laughs) No, it's not. I started to say it's a variation. To take it back to the story classic. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, it's yeah, Close it's not classic. a harkening back to the Close Reads <laughs> classic. So I'm still on the conference call, but my line of sight is, you know, directly to the back sliding glass door. And the whip, wisp of smoke is followed by what I would call a plume of smoke, followed by billows of smoke. And I thought, <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's like a lot of baked beans that are burning on the stove or something else is going on. So I discontinue my call. I get up, I walk into the house and there is smoke everywhere and there's nobody inside now. And the the smoke smells terrible. It has that kind of chemical pungent odor. And I walk out (laughs) front and Marianne is on the phone and she's like, you got to get out of the house right now. I was like, oh man. So... This is like homeowner's worst nightmare, I'm sure. <laughs> Their hot water heater exploded, caught on fire. It didn't explode. That's not right. The closet that the hot water heater was in caught on fire for reasons that the inspector could not determine. So it was a hot boxing story. It kind of was a hot boxing story. If the <laughs> box is the closet that the hot water heater was in. Right, yeah. yeah, Okay, and David's hot water heater just went out. And he has this, like his misfortunes have this strange contagious quality because I have, so he got, his whole family got sick with the flu. Two weeks later, my family got sick with the flu. And then what was, oh, the other thing was the, was the floors, the kitchen floors. Yes. Like you're, what happened? You Remind me of that one. Well, he had a leak. It was a year ago this time. Yes. And his entire, they had to replace all the wood floors. And like less than a month after that, the same thing happened to me. And then now it's the hot water heater. I'm just saying, I'm glad it wasn't me. Dude. What are you not telling us, David? I'm pretty sure that what happened in this particular instance 
is that the that the gods of fortune who pass on the con- the contagion of my misfortune mm-hmm. um I believe what happened was they thought it was Tim's turn. Yeah. But they kind of got the address, like the GPS coordinates were just a like little, a little uh, yeah. they got they got the house that kind of incompetent. on. They didn't, they didn't get the actual chaotic evil. Where you're not staying. just lawful evil. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's gotta be what happened here. I think that's I would that's say the simplest explanation. explanation I think yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, it's the simplest explanation. Um, hey, before we get into our conversation about End of Green Gables today, of course, we're going to talk about the final chapters, and we've been enjoying this very much. But I wanted to ask each of you for uh, two or three things that you have been enjoying during this quarantine time. Maybe it's, you had more time to read or watch something, or I don't know. but Or it's just something you have been using to help keep you sane or happy or whatever. That sounds, you know, I don't, I don't mean like you're, you're self-medicating, but, you know, just something that's kind of, you know, been a happy thing for you. Maybe it's something you rediscovered or um, revisited or just something you discovered for the first time. Tim, do you have anything with, as far as that goes? Just like two to three things. You don't have to give us an essay. On I have them. a couple things. Just, you know, what, what, do you, uh, what are you enjoying these days? These days I, of quarantine. I have had more opportunities to talk to former students on the phone during the last month than I have probably in the previous six months, which is great. You know, it's like, I don't know. There's always, you can, how do I say it? I love talking to my former students, but oftentimes if there's not like a deadline or something, it's easy to just kind of like put it off and be like, Oh yeah, let's talk next week or something like that. And then another couple of weeks pass. But the quarantine has been a great opportunity. I've caught up with a bunch of students that I've really missed. Uh-oh. <laughs> David. We lose David? <laughs> it's the gods of misfortune. I am the host now. I, I just know. got a little message yes. that said, Tim you are the host McIntosh. now. Well, he'll come back. Hey, Heidi, how about you? What have you been doing since the virus started? I really love this question because I think people are getting kind of tired of the self-quarantine. And um, so it's... It's such a good question, David, to remind us of what we're doing to stay sane and how we're loving it and redeeming it. So I have three things. One is that I've taken up gardening, which is something that I've said I'm going to do for years and have never done. And so I have all these little seedlings and grow lights and my house is full of tiny plants. And I love that. And I've also started baking with sourdough. And so we have lots of carbs in my house and they're delicious. And I don't regret it at all. I have no regrets. And then the last thing is little and sounds really lame, but I have perfected the art of avocado toast. Every day I have had avocado toast and in multiple variations and they're delicious. And I think I'm going to, Make this a professional goal because I am really good at avocado toast now. So, and I love it. And I sit and I read murder mystery novels at lunch for like 30 minutes every day by myself. And I drink a sparkling water and have avocado toast. And I love it. So those are Wow, that sounds a little slice of heaven. Okay, avocado toast is a a nice piece of bread toasted with avocado and an egg. Sourdough bread. Sourdough bread, bread. hot out of the oven, having cooled on the counter for like half an hour. 
and then a little bit of hummus, some mashed avocado, and then various toppings and a little bit of cumin. One of the various toppings. Well, I did find this um this onion crunch from Trader Joe's that I love. And it comes in a little jar. And I've been trying to like recreate it with different, you know, with like toasted onions and some nuts. And so I do well done, Heidi. Like everybody, I have a lot of time on my hands. So well these done. are the things that I'm doing. Thanks. I'll make you some avocado toast someday. Well, what was there, Tim? What were your things? What did you say? What I said you know? I only gave one. I would love to give another one. Um, the one thing that I mentioned was I've like, gotten in contact with a lot of former students, and we've chatted on the phone during the last month, which has been great. Great, hmm. David. What about you? Well, you said you wanted to add another one. What did you want to add? Okay, this is everyone's just going to have to humor me as I completely nerd out. But growing <laughs> up, everyone's going to know what this is if they have if they have turned on the television at all during the last two weeks. Growing up, I had an idol. I tried to walk like him and dress like him, and I literally tried to chew Jordan? gum like <laughs> Michael Jordan. I like there's this shot of him walking up the court. He would always chew gum when he's playing basketball and he would, his like chin would make these sort of like violent semicircles as he chewed <laughs> gum. And I tried to chew gum like that. And yep. ABC and NBC, excuse me, ESPN have collaborated on this 10 part miniseries about the Chicago Bulls final season. And I am as giddy as a school child about this thing. Like, I am so excited. And the first two episodes came out Sunday, and they were terrific. And part of the enjoyment for me, half of it was, um, it's just great footage of the greatest basketball player to ever walk the planet. And half of it is, like, it's just so nostalgic. I know everything that they're talking about in the video because I'm like, yeah, I've read the biography. Yeah, I've seen that, like, you know, like series on Michael Jordan. Yeah, I watched that game. Yeah, I watched that game. I watched it and I watched the rerun too. There is a whole, right now with no sports going on, there are a whole bunch of podcasts that are interviewing people that were involved in that. Like an ESPN writer named Zach Lowe did a, big podcast with Steve Kerr where they just talked about Michael Jordan's stories. Um, and so there's been a bunch of, there's even a recap podcast that comes out every Sunday. So you might be interested in, you know, if you want to nerd out even further. I probably will. Even Heidi told me that because she likes, even, even Heidi told me she watched, watched that doc. Did you really Heidi? I did. I actually, I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. We've been watching it too. It's awesome. Yeah. And it's only going to get yeah. better because now we're going to start getting into the stuff that nobody else has seen. Because the cameras were like following him around. Right. I was never into basketball, but I, I mean, Michael Jordan, I loved Scotty Pippen. And there's a whole, I'm really interested in all the behind the scenes stuff. Um, Yes. And that, I mean, it's like watching a Shakespeare history play. <laughs> it's like all these yes, it is like drama behind the scenes, and I I'm I love that stuff. Huge personalities, yeah. Love sports balls. And- this is why sports ball is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David, what about you? <laughs> um, I have been I've been cooking a lot, like a lot. Um, I mean, I cook a lot anyway, but I've been making Word. like real meals because I'm home. So I can go downstairs and like start something much earlier than I can when I get, you know, without planning ahead when I'm working at the office. 
But then I find myself rekindling my love of cereal. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us your top three cereals? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. I guess I could. I don't know. I don't eat breakfast a lot, right? But now that I'm home, <laughs> I've been eating breakfast more. And then we've had cereal in the house because it's a cheap way to keep our kids fed. You know, mostly cereal to proves it to be like a snack thing. I think at our house more than like breakfast um, because I have a child who just turned turned four who eats. Um, let, well, let's put it this way: I've never seen him not be eating. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, cereal has helped. And so I have found myself dipping into uh, a variety of cereal boxes over the last month. And, uh, you know, turns out cereal is pretty good. I'm not saying it's good for you, but it's kind of a delightful, uh, delightful way to pass five minutes. <laughs> um, especially when you're watching the new series of Bosch, which is on Amazon Prime. And it's nice, great. nice. When you said you cereal, I heard S-E-R-I-A-L. And I said, oh, like both seasons... And you were talking about the baked oats oh. and, you know, like honey-covered almonds cereal, probably. Or maybe you're talking about Apple Jacks. Maybe you're an Apple Jacks fan, David. Is that what you are? I actually am a, I'm a massive Apple Jacks fan. That are was, you really? But I'm, you know, cereals, there's a lot of cereals that are terrible. I'm just, that's another thing that I've ever been reminded of. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, people have tried to make them healthy, but I don't really see what the point is. Like... You know, let's just, let, let's just, sometimes you just have to know what a thing is and accept it, right? Like, let's just accept that cereal is a delicious uh, breakfast food that's not that good for you. If you want something healthy, you should eat oatmeal or fruit or Greek yogurt or bacon or something, depending on your dietary restrictions. And you should just let cereal be what it is. And parents just need to make wise choices for their children accordingly. You like this whole, like, let's try to make cereal. Nicely said. Not, it's just a waste of time, just a way to ruin a good thing. You're like, anyway. Fruit Loops is a semi-plastic, sugar-coated um, treat that rots people's teeth out. Let's accept it for what it is. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, then there's Heidi who's eating avocado toast and her sourdough bread. So, you know, I feel... I'm not opposed to cereal. I'm making healthy cereal. choices. I am a wide-ranging eater. So... Um. But yeah, I did realize uh, Apple Jack's pretty good. Anyway, we should probably talk about the reason, the actual thing that we're here to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the final chapters of Anne of Green Gables. Hopefully the, uh, the network will not dump me four times during this podcast. Um, and then next week, we are going to answer your questions about this book. So please, please do um, comment on the Facebook page. We'll have the thread up there after this episode. Uh, you can also email us, closereadspodcast at gmail.com. And then if you... Also want to post them on Instagram, you can do that. And it's at Close Reads Pause on Instagram. Uh, right after that, we are going to dive into Graham Greene's uh, The End of the Affair, one of his classic uh, semi-controversial novels. And I think that's going to be a really fascinating conversation. I think we have a wide variety of takes mm -hmm. on that book, at least certain parts of it. And um, we will start that, not next week, but the week after that. And this week, I will post the reading schedule for that on uh, the newsletter. So that's closereads.substack.com. I'll send that out. And then also on the various social media channels as well. So be on the lookout for that if you want to start reading ahead. Um, it's not a terribly long book. So we, we shouldn't, you know, we'll be able to really dig into it. That's one of the, you know, advantages of doing books that aren't terribly long unless we're going to spend like six weeks like we are with Crime and Punishment, which brings me to the Crime and Punishment conversations, which are available to our Patreon supporters. And if you want to get access to those and support the show, you can head over to patreon.com 
slash close reads and subscribe there. And uh, we have been working through Crime and Punishment, largely thanks to the yeoman's work of Heidi and Tim, although calling it yeoman's work might be a little bit demeaning. Um, but you guys are doing a great job and uh, filling in when I, you know, making it work when I can't be there, which just shows that, you know, you're ready to go out on your own, I think, is what, is what I'm saying. Like you're ready to go off to college. <laughs> <laughs> and be yeoman, and train to be yeoman. Yeah. What is yeah. a yeoman? Who does any, do you guys know what a yeoman is? I think a yeoman yeah. is like a, it's, I think it's like someone who is almost like an indentured servant type thing. That's why I felt like it was maybe a little demeaning. Once I said it, I realized it's like a colloquialism, but maybe it's you know not appropriate given the circumstances because you're not indentured servants. Well, I, I, think, I got what you were saying. I, I, I think it's kind of like a lower middle class in the Middle Ages, like someone who was... Um, I, I don't know if it's an indentured servant as much as it is a... Like you're a yeoman if you um, had like a blacksmith shop or something. Like you're not part of that. Oh, but you're on like your a, own. Maybe, yeah. Well, I'm pretty confident that someone's going to gonna send us the exact definition. So I know it's going to be really great, and I'm like, I'm already grateful to you. So thank you, whoever you are. Um, all twelve people for your will. yeoman's work in supplying right. the. Exactly. Yeah, that was yeoman, nerdy. Let's talk about Anne of Green Gables. Uh, they'll make yeah. it. Um, <laughs> Matthew's a yeoman. We'll say that. Um, no, speaking on going off on your own and then deciding to stay loyal yeah. with the people who launched you off in the first place. Nice. There we go. Nice. All right. Well, we made it work. Okay. Hey, Tim, I want to ask you the first question about this book, though, because you said something a couple of weeks ago that I, I asked you what I admit was kind of a leading question. Um, uh, because I knew what was coming in the book. But I asked you, you may, I don't know if you remember this, I asked you if this book you thought could handle the um, high stakes or tragedy that often shows up in uh, books of its of this sort, books like about orphans and so forth. And you said you didn't think that it could. Yeah. Um, I yeah. asked you that knowing that it happened to Matthew. And then I, now I need to yeah. know, revise your answer to that because you did text Heidi and I saying, oh my gosh, guys, Anne of GG ending is so great or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I repent of my previous answer. I was completely in the wrong. I mistakes were made. Um, I want on behalf of myself and my family, please, we ask for you to respect our privacy while we go through this time of recuperation and healing. So you're saying you want to take wrong. I want to take back the take. I was completely wrong because when Matthew, it happened so suddenly that I, you know, like I felt prepared, but it still, it came on so suddenly. I was so sad. It was, but it was just the perfect kind of conclusion to this book. I mean, Anne is reaching maturity. She's like, full of accomplishments. She's being recognized by her community. The community that once was just like, oh, this girl's out mm. of control. Yeah. Now everyone's kind of come around. She's been rewarded. And right when she's kind of standing on her own two feet, the first person that just really loved her and believed in her, Matthew, dies. And it just, like, 
poetically, it was perfect. It was sad, perfect. Yeah, I was sitting there reading it again last night, knowing knowing how it ends. Um, but I think through this this particular reading, I've come to love Matthew even more, who's a character I really like, and I think is one of the great things about the movie, by the way. Um, but it, I was kind of struck by, despite the fact that I knew what was coming, how sad the whole section made me feel. And I, <clears throat> I was sitting there reading the bit, you know, where the chapter before he dies, he and Anne are having the conversation out in the field, or, you know, I think it was in the field. They're having the conversation. And uh, he, he kind of pats her on the head and says, you know, you're, you know, I wouldn't trade you for a dozen boys. And, you know, I'm, and then he tells her he's proud of her. And I think knowing I knew what was coming. And so I found myself just that moment being, being so sad, but also just being struck by how well done it is because it holds up so well, even if you know what's happening. Like, you know, the stakes of the outcome are not the only thing that makes the book meaningful. You know, just every line during these last few chapters is so packed with meaning in a way that's, you know, rare, I think, you know, especially for books that are, I guess, sort of geared for children. Um, Heidi, you, when you were, um, when you were reading this as a child, how did you respond to the ending of this book and Matthew dying and, and the, and make, having to make these tough choices and all that. How, I mean, did it, did you, do you remember feeling differently about it than you did the early portions of the book where you looked at her and you know, she, you felt like she represented you or stood for you or something like that? No, I think it's all of a piece. What I, I love about Anne and this, I think goes to Tim, what you were saying earlier about this difficult time of repentance for you. <laughs> that, um, <laughs> Um, that in the, these novels, there is corresponding grief and darkness to the highs that are presented. Um, she's, she's telling the story of a fully human life. And up until this point, Anne's life has been on a bit of an upward trajectory as she's adapting to this new community and finding out who she is and settling in and, and, now, to your point, poetically, and I think even on a human level, it's time for her to have to learn to endure some pain within that community and within that life that she's building. It's not just happy. I mean, this isn't Pippi Longstocking. It's not just a, this is a real story of a real life. And so, mm. In, in the poetic sense, yes, it is time for her to endure this. And this is kind of the catalyst to the next part of Anne's life. And it's what keeps her at Green Gables and all that. But just in terms of what it means to be human, that's also the way life goes. That's, there's these undulations. And uh, we create a capacity for joy through our capacity for suffering and vice versa. And that's what happens to Anne and to the people in her community. And it, and it does feel right to us. Um, and I think it is what sets this apart from being just kind of a happy kid's story to being like a really human story. Mm. Mm. Heidi, when you, did it tear you up when you read it for the first time? No, it didn't. Because really, it, it, 
I mean, I was sad. And when I read it to Lucy a few years ago for the first time, I was crying um, um, as, as I read it to her. Um, but it didn't feel wrong. And to the point I made earlier about my own life, like I had endured plenty of suffering at this point in my life. And so it's a bit comforting to know that this idealized person in a story isn't really idealized. They're human. They're going through suffering and tragedy. And I remember vividly that phrase that she uses, the white majesty of death. I remember mm. reading that as a child. And, and it shaped my vision of death that for Lucy Montgomery, it is a true passage that there is a dignity and a nobility to a, to a human soul and a human body in death. That separation is something to be honored as well as to be grieved. And um, not because death is good, but because it's a passage. And, mm. um, and she, she crowns that, Lucy Maud Montgomery, she, she crowns that with dignity the way she does every other human experience. And, and that was shaping to me. How did Lucy do with it when you read it to her? She was sad about it. She, she was, yeah. oh, you know, it's sobering. It takes this like very jo- joyful kind of lighthearted story and it, and it makes it human in the sense of up and down and, um, and like what it means to be a, a true person in the world who has to en- endure as well as to rejoice and, um, and can be either damaged or redeemed by that experience of suffering. And at this point, Anne is so integrated into this community and into this life that, that it's a redemptive experience for her instead of a shattering loss. Um, and even though she grieves very deeply for it and she, Mm -hmm. you know, they, she talks, you know, a lot about what we all experience about death. You know, I have a friend who was recently widowed and she says a lot of the same things that, that are explored here. Like, oh, the spring is coming and somehow that feels sad if it makes me joyful, but also mm. life keeps going, you know? So anyway, I, yeah. I do remember being sad about it, but I don't remember thinking it felt unnatural. Yeah. It feels very natural. Marilla's pr- plight was, for me, it, it, it was sadder than mm. the loss of Matthew. Mm-hmm. And I, I think part of this, for personal reasons, and I'll tell you the reason, when I was seven years old, our family, so my mom is from California, um, and our family, my mom and dad moved to Atlanta maybe six months before I was born, and her parents were still out in California. When I was seven, we get a phone call from my grandmother and, you know, I'm just a kid. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. I just know that my mom is crying in a way that I've never seen her cry before. Like she is like shoulders shaking and sobbing and I don't know what's going on. And I remember sitting next to her on the couch and crying, (laughs) like crying so hard, not having the faintest idea what was going on. Um, her father had gone blind in the course of a day. Mm. My grandfather had a stroke to his optic nerve and he kept complaining that the lights were going dim. And then he woke up the next morning and he couldn't see anything and he never regained his sight. Wow! And so I've always had this kind of 
my worst nightmares growing up were that I was going to go blind. I was going to be in an accident and go blind, or I was going to like fall asleep and wake up and not be able to see. So the prospect prospect of Marilla not being able to see and her whole livelihood, of course, being tied up with that and Green Gables being potentially at loss because of that. Oh, that hit me really hard. And for the sake of the story, I thought, what is Anne going to do? Like Green Gables is so essential to who she is, but she's also, she has these ambitions and we want to like see her ambitions rewarded. We want to see her pursue those things. What's going to happen? And so it was this, it was a great dilemma for the last part of the book that I was not anticipating at all. And the solution to it was just, so satisfying. Well, Tim, you mentioned earlier at the top, well, not at the top of the show, but at the top of our conversation about this book, that um, Matthew's death comes very abruptly. Um, and I was, I was thinking about, yeah. this is where I couldn't separate the fact that I knew what was coming because I was trying to figure out if it was abrupt. You know, like, I, you know, you just forget these things. Um, and I, as I was thinking, I was like, I bet, I bet, Tim's going to say that it feels very abrupt. And what I was wondering is, is this whole section, you know, the, the transition of the book into a, even the prose becomes a little bit more complex. And the idea is that Lucy Maud Montgomery begins to explore, become a little bit more um, uh, complex as well. Uh, naturally, I mean, this child is growing up, so that's, you know, that's not surprising. But does the transition into this sort of last act of the book, this last quarter of the book or so, feel as if it comes up too quickly for you, just as... I mean, I'm not saying that you said that Matthew's um, death being abrupt is too abrupt, but how do you feel with this whole section of the book and the whole sort of transition? The the book definitely changes pretty broadly during this last quarter. I thought it was just... Terrific! I keep like I'm just blathering on about like how much I love the ending, but I did. And Matthew's death seems abrupt, but it's not as if we didn't have warnings about it. There are moments where Marilla worries about his heart, and so we we there are hints that it's coming, but it really does feel like he goes to sleep and he's well, and then the next time we see him, he's gray and pallid and oh my goodness, what's happening to him? You know, we're immediately thrust into, what do we think happened? He had a heart attack. Is that what happened? Is it even stated in the book? Um, yeah. So, so it, it, that, that shit, that kind of continues this shift that's already started within Anne that because of her accomplishments, because of the scholarship, we know that she is a changed woman we know that she is moving on. Um, and so it, it did not feel like it was a hasty transition. It was just, it happened quickly, but it was paced so well. Hmm. I agree. And one of the things about Matthew is that he's so um, uh, easily overlooked, right? He's, He's he's the steadfast provider, but he doesn't hog the center of attention 
he doesn't demand attention. In fact, he actively avoids it. And so he is very quietly loved by these women that he lives with. Um, But, you know, he's not, I think those, those little clues that she gives us are important, but it's almost part of the deal that you don't catch it because that's the character of Matthew, right? Like it, so it's that craftsmanship even sets it up, I think even more beautifully. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself wishing this book was longer, which is Mm. not a thing I've ever, that I'm uh, accustomed to feeling. (laughs) I think almost every book is too long, but I found that this book, uh, needs to needed to be longer like i don't mean that like as a criticism but i felt like it easily could have handled being longer if that makes sense and maintained mm-hmm. its quality like it, like you she could have for example given us more of and at when she's at school or you know not brushed over you know she brushes over two or three years pretty quickly you know just kind of says then winter passed and then it was spring and we could have gotten more and one of the things that i wish we would have had we could have had more of is Matthew. And I understand what you're saying, Heidi, that there is a sense to which he's overlooked. And so him sort of being the third character, or really maybe the fourth or fifth character in the book, it makes sense. Um, but he's, there's also a lot of richness in his character. And when he does speak, it's really special. And so I found myself wanting the book to be a little longer so we could get one or two more conversations between Anne and Matthew, in part because I think that it would add that much more pathos. Well, so on the one hand, there's the idea that if there's not much of him, it leaves you want more, to put it crassly, right? But then on the other hand, like if we got more of Anne with him, it would add more pathos to her loss because you'd begin to see, or you'd be able to see how special their relationship was even more. Um, Hmm. and you get to see, you know, a lot of it is sometimes we get inside their heads. Very rarely do we get inside Matthew's head, which I'm fine with, but Marilla and even Rachel and stuff get to sort of be wise from time to time. And I wish we'd been able to have more of Matthew's brand of wisdom because there is a, you know, he is a, he's a quiet, hardworking sort of Wendell Berry-like character, right? Like I kept thinking of characters from the world of Wendell Berry's fiction, but I wish we had, could have gotten more of the wisdom the way he sees the world, not just his love for Anne. Um, which, I mean, I, and I don't mean that to be a criticism. I think this is a great book. I think she pulled it off. I'm just saying, for me personally, it, that's something I would have liked to, to have more of because I, because I love him as a character, is, is what I'm saying. But, you know, yeah. I'm being, I'm being greedy. Yeah, that makes sense. Being. I almost wish that she had written a sequel to this book. Oh, wait! <laughs> yeah, but you know, the guy who dies in the first book doesn't get to show up in the second book. So yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. solve my problem. <laughs> That's true. It doesn't. Maybe I should write The Merry Adventures of, of Matthew Cuthbert. Which are really, <laughs> really what they are is he comes in from the field at the end of the day and he gets his pipe out and he gets a big glass of tea and he sits on the porch and walks the sunset and then he goes to bed. So, yeah, right, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. The pre-posthumous adventures of Matthew Cuthbert. The pre-posthumous adventures. That is incredibly hilarious. And that needs to be the name of one of the plays. Instead of like the Latin hey. times of, you know, Tom Jones or Henry Fielding, it's got to be like the pre-posthumous. I like that. I'm going to steal so that funny. for myself. I really am going to borrow that for myself. The pre-posthumous adventures. Oh, that's genius. Let's hang up and go write that right now.
<laughs> okay, Eddie, you're going to have to carry the next 30 minutes of this podcast. Tim and I go. I got this. Yeah. It's time for a high monologue. Yeoman's work. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what if I. The what if I... Adventures of a Canadian Yeoman, the Matthew Cutter. <laughs> <laughs> what if Heidi and I were like secretly upset that you called us Yeoman? Like we had attached some sort of like. Yeah, some sort of. Negative connotation. To that. And we just turned this into like, like, you know, like we had bitter caustic remarks about, Oh, what, but I'm just a yeoman. There's a reason I hedged my bets pretty much as soon as I said it. (laughs) I just always considered unsay it. You know, it's said it's out there. Technically I can't delete it from the recording. Yes. But not from my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, the record of your heart can be can, can be confused. <laughs> the only non-yeoman thing I said today was that I eat a lot of avocado toast. Every other thing is pure yeoman. So. That was definitely not yeoman. I think that's a kind of a badge that you're not a yeoman. <laughs> what's the What's the opposite of a yeoman? Because the opposite of like yeoman is really avocado toast. Avocado toast. I, I, I think, yeah, an aristocrat. <laughs> Yeah, Heidi added herself as a lunchtime aristocrat. Yes, that's exactly true. I'm, she she has her own like my part of my she's day. Got avocado toast on. Yep. Meanwhile, Tim's out there like he got a lunch pail. It's, it's made of like metal. And exactly. It up, got right. Unwrapped. Doing some hot yoga. Spam sandwich. Across his shoulder. Heidi was like waiting for that. She's like, don't try to sell Tim as a yeoman. He does hot yoga. And I will play that card. I will play the hot yoga card. Hot yoga, she just means he turns the heat up in his cottage really high and takes a nap. (laughs) Good cleansing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good it's a good you're a writer. We know, we know what you do when you when you when you want to break. You just take naps, you drink tea. I do not. I do hot yoga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You watch Michael Jordan documentaries. Class. I don't know. We are way right. off track right now. Um, is there a passage? You know, this last um, this last section for me was full of markable passages, highlightable passages, so to speak. And I was wondering if either of you had one that really stood out for you. Uh, Heidi, I'll let you go first. Um, just Tim, by the way, has, has an hour been long enough for you to find your David? I don't have it. I don't have it because they have discontinued my Audible um, to Kindle membership. So I have no text. But I do... Actually, I can find it online. <laughs> and Google I know the, Anne of Green Gable passages and choose the first one that comes up. No, I, it's the last passage for me. The very last patch of the book. I loved it. <laughs> All right, let's, let's save that then. So, um, okay. Heidi, well, what about you? Is that was mine. You? Oh, darn, darn. Um... Convenient to just be like, I don't know, the, the last paragraph of the book. Let's, let's just go with that one. It really well, was. It is very good. Um, I think you said, okay. what if you, you mentioned a, while you're looking, Heidi, Tim mentioned, what if um, you and what if the two of you actually took my comments to heart and started throwing caustic comments out? So I think now I'm on the defensive and now I'm just throwing caustic comments out. Yeah, I'm feeling that, David. <laughs> feeling it. It's not right, well, of Green Gables, I suppose. So let us let Anne speak healing balm to these troubled times. Well done. Um, so on page 
350. Chuck. I just, I think, yeah, uh, the last, sorry, we have different books. It's in The Reaper Whose Name is Death, um, the, the chapter where Matthew dies. And I, I think there's just a lot of wisdom in this chapter and a lot that speaks 37, to in case people are. real grief, like true grief. And I, I really liked this um, passage. You know, Anne can't weep. Like she, she can't cry for a while. And Diana doesn't understand. And she sends Diana away kindly. Um, and then she's, she talks to Marilla about that. Um, so I'm going to read Marilla's remarks and then, which are very characteristic of her and then Anne's. Um, all right. Then the tears came and Anne wept her heart out. Marilla heard her and crept in to comfort her. There, there, don't cry so dearie. It can't bring him back. It, it isn't right to cry so. I knew that today, but I couldn't help it then. He'd always been such a good, kind brother to me, but God knows best. Oh, just let me cry, Marilla, sobbed Anne. The tears don't hurt me like that ache did. Stay here for a little while with me and keep your arm round me so. I couldn't have Diana stay. She's good and kind and sweet, but it's not her sorrow. She's outside of it, and she couldn't come close enough to my heart to help me. It's our sorrow, yours and mine. Oh, Marilla, what will we do without him? I really love that a lot. And I love that Anne can identify that. And I, and I think this is very real with grief. There's something about this. Um, she's, she and Marilla are brought closer together. And I think that's part of Lucy Maud Montgomery's vision for the world is that even in these deep valleys, the valley of the shadow of death that we all walk through in whatever way that we do, that, that, that is still a passage to the kingdom. And although I don't know if she would put it in such Christian terms, um, but I would. And, and I think that that's part of her redemptive vision that, that, that Matthew's death has a, um, like has a, a, a goodness, like an invitation to goodness, even though it's hard. And, and, and that's what's happening here with Anna Marilla. They're being drawn together um, and, and becoming even more of a family, just the two of them. And even though Diana's friendship is, deeply important to Anne. Marilla is her family. And, and that I think is what's being displayed here in this sweet passage, as well as, you know, the commentary on grief that it gives, which I think is really wise. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Diana part, because I think that if you include the Diana part, this, these say two pages here are the book's peak that for me, mm. um, in terms of where the book has sort of um, crescendoed from a character development point. Um, and, and you know, we've gotten to love these characters, and the, and the fact that it hurts so much is proof of that. Um, you know, they to some degree, although they're characters, to some degree, we are as readers able to sort of be within the grief that she says Diana is outside of, um, because we, in a, in a sort of weird literary way, we're worse. We've kind of become a part of that family. But if you, the book sort of deepens; it gets more complicated here. Because for so long it's been, you know, these these um, really intimate connections. But then, you know, like between Diana and Anne, for example, um, these deep friendships, these kindred, you know, kindred spirits, to use her term. But it deepens here because um, Anne recognizes, you know, that that Diana is not. There's some things that even your kindred spirit 
can't understand the way that you understand it. Um, and that I think deepens the sort of uh, themes of the book. It sort of makes it, it takes it from being a traditional sort of child, child book to a, to a book that is, I think this is one of the passages that, that people keep coming back to it for that's made the book sort of stand the test of time because it, because it becomes so profound on so many different matters and from grief to friendship to, uh, to, um, um, to questions of, of um, heaven and hell, even which she talks about. Um, and I, so for me, this is like the passage of the book that, you know, maybe it's not the one that I like to read the most, but to me, it's the best passage in the book that marks how good this book is, if, if you will. This, this book, unlike any book that I can remember, it, it sort of the book matures as Anne matures. If that makes any sort of sense. Yeah. It, like Harry um, <laughs> oh, is that right? I mean, yeah, the embarrassing thing that I've not read Harry Potter. Is it, it, it's the same sort of thing. Is that right? I think so, from book to book. I, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's to have a narrator in Anne of Green Gables as close as it is to Anne. I'm not saying that well. Let me start again the narrator is really close to Anne. Like we're, we're almost, we're, it's not first person, but it's pretty close. There are times the narrator kind of steps away from Anne and we get somebody else's perspective for a while, but we're still kind of like always really close to Anne. But yet it, it's not, the narrator is not just placed within Anne. Anne is not self narrating or anything like that. And so to have that little bit of a distance, but to still feel like the prose and the narrator are sort of growing up as she does, I just think is one of the delights of the book. Mm. It's a good idea. That's well said. I just, I, my perspective on this book, I, I think I went into it very hopeful and very optimistic because it has such a great reputation, because it's had such a meaningful impact in Heidi's life, because like, I've never heard anybody say, yeah, Enneagram Gables, it's okay. Like everybody loves this book. So I was optimistic and hopeful for the reading of the book. And yeah, it hit the mark. It really hit the mark. I'm so glad to hear that. Oh, for sure. Heidi, I can like, it makes me so, and now I feel like I know this part of Heidi, you know, like the childhood Heidi. I'm like, oh, I have like a little glimpse into that. And I just love that too. Thanks, Tim. It's true. Well, of course. smile on my face, like a big (laughs) grin. Oh, well, let's talk about your passage then, because it's the end of the book. um, And and I need to get, I can read it since you don't have a thing in front of you. I found it. I can read it. Where where are you starting then? Is it, are you starting with, after Gilbert and Anne have separated oh, and she goes into the yes. house. Okay. I was just going to do the last three paragraphs. Yep. Go for it. Anne sat long at her window that night, companioned by glad content. The wind purred softly in the cherry boughs and the mint breaths came up to her. The stars twinkled over the first, the, over the pointed firs in the hollow and Diana's light gleamed through the old gap. Anne's horizon had closed in since the night she had sat there after coming home from Queens. But if the path set before her feet was to be narrow, 
she knew that flowers of quiet happiness would bloom along it. The joy of sincere work and worthy aspiration and congenial friendship were to be hers. Nothing could rob her of her birthright of fancy or her ideal dream, world of dreams. And there was always the bend in the road. God is in his heaven. All's right with the world, whispered Anne softly. Mm. I love the way that the ending refers back to the beginning when she's trying to learn how to pray. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of little craft things she's doing here, which I think are really nice. Like the stars twinkled over the pointed firs in the hollow and Diana's light gleamed through the old gap. So she creates this image of like, there's this distance between them, but that gleaming light, which connects them. Um, and then to so the idea of gaps being filled by people. And then the next line, she says that her horizons, her horizons had closed in. And so she's got, there's this sort of, in a way, there's this notion of, being oppressed a little bit um, and the idea of a narrow path and things setting upon you and you know difficulties and all that. But then just even just in that little image of Anne, of Diana's light being the gap, the thing that closes the gap between them is, uh, is really nice in terms of the, how she then presents it through um, congenial friendship, joy of sincere work and worthy aspiration. So it's just a like really nice, tight, tightly crafted uh, thematically three paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's lovely. How do you... So we have read this along with you. And for you, it was the 100th reading. She's <laughs> oh, on the 972nd now. 977th <laughs> reading. I mean, what did it feel like to have these, um, these two friends of yours reading this heart book along with you? Was there any part of you that felt protective i was a little nervous because it is so personal yeah i was but not nervous about anybody's response to it because i understand that reading is always a risk people don't see things the same way and i also am very aware that because it's so personal to me i have a hard time reading it in a literary sense. Like I have a, I have a hard time reading this as a book. I, I do read this as like me. Yeah. So, um, and I'm perfectly content with that. I read hundreds of books just as books. Like I'm completely fine not separating myself from this novel, just letting it be part of me. Um, but I was a little nervous that I would get defensive of it mm. you were nervous um, about yourself and not about us is that what you're- yes yes exactly yes <laughs> so uh, so let me can i ask you a follow-up question related to that then yeah okay so the, the nature of the show being what it is well I'll, you don't really steer the conversation you know right either 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 i do or Here one of us does or or <laughs> yeah or um i said like the lord of the manor <laughs> I'm not the one that said that. I just want that on the record. <laughs> um, but, but so like, that, it doesn't give you, you don't, I mean, you can bring things up and you can ask questions and you know, you guys do that. That's, right. that's the nature of the show. But also there's like, I'm just kind of pushing it along. Um, and so did you ever feel like, 
come on, we got to talk about something more or you were got annoyed with when we transitioned or like you didn't feel like you got in what you wanted to say about something or why you loved a passage or something? No, I never felt like that. Because I... I mean, <laughs> I always just say what I want to say. So. <laughs> Fair. That works. Um, but no, I really... I never... And you know, there's been some chatter, some very kind and affirming chatter on the Facebook group lately about that very dynamic between the three of us that we listen to each other. We're not here just to say what we want to say, although that is what I just said. Um, but, but not just to do that. Yes, exactly. Like we're, we listen to each other, we adapt, we change our minds. We, you know, we're friends in real life. And so it, this isn't, you know, a, a panel this isn't an academic panel right? Um, on a book. It's a community of readers, the three of us and, and the Close Reads group. And it always feels like that to me, no matter what book it is. And so even though I was, that's why I was nervous about myself, not about, you know, the conversation about the book. I was like, I will, pro- there's probably things in this book that I'm reading wrong, that I'm emotionally attached to, that if I was encountering it for the first time, I would read it differently. And I'm aware of that. And I've like settled that because it's just personal for me. And um, so, and, and it just kind of felt like a regular conversation about a book on close reads. So, which was great. So thanks guys. Heidi and David, I was thinking this week about, um, the things that I have grown to love that I've just don't naturally have a kinship for. Mm. Um, I think about my sister has introduced me. I just, I'm really close with my sister. She's just one of the, just one of the unique human beings on the planet, but we're, we're very different people. But when she loves something, even if I have no kind of natural inclination toward it, I lean toward it and I pay attention because man, if my sister's vouching for it, it's got to be <laughs> great, you know? And I thought about, I feel the same way about you guys. Like if you guys really advocate for something, I, I'm going to lean into it, even if it, I don't have a natural inclination toward it. And I thought about how much, um, what a blessing being able to like love people and be loved by people is in that it, it, it makes you, it gives you the capacity to reach well beyond yourself because you love and respect somebody else and that, that somebody else has an affection for something. And you can kind of adopt that affection into yourself. Mm. And, and I've thought about, forgive me, and I'm like going to swerve a little bit. It's so hard for me to watch the news because everything is so polarized, right? And sometimes I've thought about maybe the, maybe the problem of polarization has like very, very, very little to do with politics. And it has much more to do with, we all have kind of natural affinities and maybe the kind of polarization that, that we're, we feel kind of like in the country is more that, our circles of affection have diminished and shrunk. Mm. So it's hard for us to take on someone else's. If, if my friend, if, if I don't have friends who are progressives, if I don't have friends who are 
conservatives and I can't kind of absorb their affection into me, then I'm only going to stick with kind of my natural affinities and I'm not going to budge. I'm not going to be able to flex. And so I just, I don't know. I'm just really grateful for this sort of the, I have been blessed by having such wonderful people in my life, you two included, that I've had the capacity to kind of like absorb things into me and look at things that are not just, that don't come naturally to me. Mm. And I think Anne of Green Gables is such a great example. I just would not have picked this book up on my own. I just wouldn't have done it. Well, it strikes me that like, that's what the story, I mean, not just that you are liking, like you would not have thought of the, to pick this book up without other people influencing you to do so. But also that's the story of Anne, right? It's like, Anne is changed by people changing her and she brings, yeah, that's right. she brings this new way of looking at the world to people who never would have thought about the world. Like that's what Marilla is reflecting on at the end of the book, right? Like the things that Anne brought to her changed her and Matthew and, and Rachel and Diana and all these people changed them in a way that never would have been possible without her. Um, and you know, I, I suppose that's, that's the kind of the nature of, of community, right? <laughs> We're yeah. constantly pointing each other towards the things that we have affection for. Um, and, and that's, you know, hopefully people within the community have good taste, I guess. <laughs> um, that's why we care so much about who our people, who our friends, who our children are friends with, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The first thing that determines your taste is your taste in friends. Um, the taste in the people you surround yourself with. Um, can can we think things like propinquity? <laughs> Say that again. Nothing propinks like propinquity. <laughs> yeah, you are on that fire be, with your wordsmithing. We need today. a t-shirt with a yeah. t-shirt with that. That I I need to be fair. There's a little bit of story. I'll tell the story some other time. But that's actually a quote from um, who's the guy who wrote the 007 books, Ian um, Fleming, right? Yeah, Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming. Yeah. It's an Ian Fleming quote that my dad. I got used. that. I got that. Me. Nice. Well done. Thank you. Yeoman's work. Our new slogan for the show. Hashtag Yeoman's work. Anytime, anytime somebody like pulls something really quippy and like maybe, you know, like a little bit highbrow, Yeoman's work. <laughs> it's like at the end of the show, like on social media now, it's going to be hashtag happy reading, hashtag Yeoman's work. Yeoman's work. I would be fine with that actually. I mean, I love happy reading, but... Oh, we were both right, guys. Um, number one definition of a yeoman, a man holding and cultivating a small landed estate. The second definition is a servant in a royal or noble household, ranking between a sergeant and a groom or a squire and a page. Uh, squire's work. Squire's work. We should like make a I list of these things and then we should sort. Holder, though. That's what I want to believe that yeoman is, as long as I'm going to be a yeoman. <laughs> well, that's the yeoman who eats avocado toast. Yes, exit. Thank you. That's so, my version of yeoman. We should, like, yeoman. <laughs> we should sort these different categories of yeoman out and then, or like the different categories of people who worked in a, in a manner and like for a lord. And then with different comments that we have should be sorted into the different degrees. Yeoman's work, squire's work. <laughs> Pages work. Pages work. Right, exactly. right. work. Yeah. Although, if I was more of a modern, I would probably insist on being called like a yo lady. <laughs> yes. I'm fine with being a yeoman, actually. It makes me think of Rocky. <laughs> right. Yo, Adrian. Um, 
So before we go, we got to talk a little bit about Gilbert. Um, yes. We've talked about a lot of things and Gilbert has not come up. We've talked about Serial, Yeoman's work, Michael Jordan. Uh, I could go on and on. It's the native mm-hmm. one yes. of those episodes, but we have yet to talk about Gilbert. And at the end of the book, of course, we get some resolution um, and some self-awareness from both of them, which is really nice. Um, Tim, you have been, you know, as the newbie to this relationship, you have been tracking it. You had some comments about your expectations um, as we went. How did how did the way Lucy Maud Montgomery wrapped up their relationship, at least within the context of this first volume, line up with your expectations for what what was going to happen with with the two of them? Well, her ending is much better than the one that I imagined. I'm, I imagined that there was going to be a little bit more of a sort of like, like the, the beginnings of a relationship were going to be there. And there is the beginning of a relationship is there, but it's more, I would say it's more of like the promise of things to come than it's actually the beginning of a relationship. Um, yeah. It's the beginning of a friendship. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I'm str- I was struck by there's no, she doesn't even really hint per se at that a, a romance might blossom. You know, it's not like right. you've got mail or something. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. where they dislike each other and then in the end you know, end up together. The, I mean, that's not what the book is telling us is going to come. Although you can keep reading and find out what does come. But the, the first thing that comes is this friendship. Yeah. And that in some ways is just, I mean, for a book that is sort of about friendship, that seems so right. Yeah. Very fitting. How did you, did, I mean... It's hard to ask these questions to you who've read it 900, 999 times now. I assume you've read it 27 times just since I last made the comment. Um, yeah, while you guys were talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just have it memorized and you just speed through it. Um, um, yeah, so... Yes, proceed. I don't know what I was going to ask anymore. Talk about this relationship. <laughs> I love the ending. I love this. I Because as... Tim pointed out it's it's realistic. This is the kind of um, you know Anne has this gift for friendship, and so any romantic relationship for her is going to begin there, and it does with gilbert and and that is the foundation of the rest of their lives and their story um, and I like. I just like Gilbert in this past. There's just a few, I think, well-chosen words that make him delightful. Like he, uh, the fact that he's whistling. I love that. A tall mm. lad came whistling out of a gate. It was Gilbert and the whistle died on his lips as he recognized Anne. He lifted his cap courteously, but he would have passed on in silence. It just speaks to his playfulness and he's like a happy person and he is polite to her. Um, even though she he he's not expecting what happens next, and then I really like how I really like the word jubilantly that's used later on in that passage. We're going to be the best of friends," said Gilbert jubilantly. "We were born to be good friends, Anne. You've thwarted destiny long enough. Like there's there's just this like jollity to him. Um, well, and it that, makes them seem right together too, because now that yeah. you're kind of unleashing his real personality, you're like, yeah, they belong to they belong to, as friends. Yes, like she's a little intense. Like she's she's really fun, but she's she still takes herself very seriously, mm. and um, and and that 
like part of what Gilbert offers to her is just this kind of jubilant, zestful experience of life. And um, she would have appreciated the line, you've thwarted destiny long enough. That's a very and line. But he's still her intellectual equal. Um, So I just, I, I like this whole scene and it's not very long. It's like half a page. And yet somehow it's very satisfying, which speaks to a really good writer, I think. One of the things that is genius that Lucy Maud Montgomery did is she just rips their competition out of the book entirely in one sentence earlier when she realizes that they're not going to be going to, to the same, that he's not going to be going to college. And so she's not going to be able to compete with him. And she realizes, well, shoot, I've got to figure out a new way to get motivation. And so just like the notion of them being competitors just in one sentence gets completely torn out of the book and our expectations for it are gone. So by the time they have this meeting here, both us as readers and Anne, you know, herself, that's just not part of the equation anymore. And so, you know, when he does this nice thing for her and basically makes it so she can't reject it, you know, she's basically backed into the corner of having to admit, you know, this is a good dude and we get to be, we got to be friends, but she doesn't have the competition to fall back on like she might have in the old time. And we don't have that as readers to to feel a distance between them. All those distances have been ripped away. I just think that's really right. smart. Yeah, it's good. I didn't notice that, but that's so true. That's really good, David. I'm really tempted to ask each of you um, a personal question about, do you feel with your spouse, are there like, does competition survive happy marriages? No, I didn't ask that very well. I consider you both happily married. Mm-hmm. Do you do you ha- still have to wrestle with like competitive feelings? Oh, that is a good question. And you can duck it if you want to. Sure. I know it's like no, it's a good question. No, um, any kind of dynamic of competition in my particular marriage and, you know, every marriage is its own kingdom in its own little country is custody mostly with time. Like if I, cause we're both just really busy, interested people who have big lives on our own and together. And so it's who, who, who gets to travel over the summer or whatever, like those kinds yeah. of questions. Yeah, but competing not for resources. Com- yes. Which, and yeah, in a in a closed system, resources are limited, especially resources like time and money. Right. Um, those are the big ones. And um, but in terms of the competition of competency, I'm not sure a healthy marriage can sustain that. Yeah. You mean like if you view the other person as lesser than you in terms of competency, yes, like if that's I'm not really healthy. Yes, or trying to become more successful or awarded or prestigious or make more money, you know, like those kinds of things that um, that sometimes can be healthy within a friendship. I'm not sure they can be in a marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I would think not. I, Bethany is, an, is a healthily uncompetitive person, I would say. Uh-huh. Like if, you know, in the right circumstances, she'll get competitive in, in, in a healthy way. But like, say you're playing a game or we're playing some, playing, I don't know, we used to play tennis or something like that on a rare occasion. Or say we're doing something like that, then she'll be competitive in the moment and then forget about it. But I'm like extremely competitive. So I get... I, so if we were the same, it wouldn't, 
it wouldn't work. Mm. But I think there is, a, you know, I, th- I think there is something to the idea of like you compete for. You're kind of like I don't know any relationship that where you see someone a lot and then you care about it. You sort of are competing for that person's interests, right? Like for their attention. Mm-hmm. So there's a degree to which yeah, you know she's going to be competing with work or you know sports or my phone or whatever <laughs> for my attention, and I'm going to be competing with those other things for her attention. But that's different than competing with her for to to prove who's better at something or who's like more competent. Um, but I, I think, I think that's probably the unhealthy part, but I think there is something like, I, it's probably healthy to be, I mean, it, I so I shouldn't say that. I don't know if it's healthy to be competing for the attention of your spouse. Um, but that's just the natural way of things that whether we had smartphones or not, you know, if I was a farmer, she'd be competing with the fields. <laughs> right. So, uh, if I was a real yeoman, <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. Did that answer your question, Tim? It's a good question. Yeah, 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 I did. Like, I think it's a healthy start for Anne and Gilbert. It shows them as equals. Yes, right. right? But it can't follow them throughout their lives. Yeah. And I like what David said about how how Montgomery recognizes that and, and handles it. But interestingly, it's Gilbert who kind of like settles. To, I mean, it's well, it's on the one. At first, it's the circumstances. Like his family doesn't have the money. Like he's not gonna. You know, he didn't. You know, he didn't win the the Avery scholarship, so he can't go to college. Um, but he's gonna clearly be a competent teacher, so he's got this job. And so, um, but then he gives her. You know, once he realizes the situation, he gives up something to help her out. Um, and so, you know, despite, and there's an honorableness in that, like it really shows how honorable he is because, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily expect her to, to give anything to him back. He doesn't expect her to even thank him, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't go up to her as they're walking past each other, expecting her to, you know, soliloquize about how great he is. He just, he, he just tips his hat and keeps on walking. And it says he wouldn't have said anything if Anne hadn't said something to him. So there's this sort of, quiet honorableness about him um, that's emerged where he does what he feels is the right thing for someone that he cares about without expectation of, you know, romance or even friendship or whatever. But then once she, once she does reach out to him, he is so happy that it's, it's very joyous, you know, it's jubilant. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, she pulls that out, but at the same time, he's doing something honorable that is very self, very sacrificial. Um, It's that it is going to cost him something to do it. And so, yeah. when she, you know, it's the final thing that makes her realize ah, I've treated this person poorly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we should wrap it up. Any final thoughts from either of you? I just think read the next books. I'm not necessarily going to advocate for you guys to read the next books because you're boys. Although I am <laughs> going to watch the entire Michael Jordan documentary. Oh, good. So, well, maybe what we should do is we should watch the full mini series, and then we should. Yeah, we should, I think like Tim. I feel I want you to watch that again now. I um, right. Uh, no, David. I've never watched the thing in totality. It's just I've only seen bits and shreds of it here and there. So it would be a complete viewing. It would be a revelatory viewing experience for me. What if we did an Anne of Green Gables last, last dance, dance crossover? Michael Jordan mashup? <laughs> I'm for this. 
I'm I'm very I'm much totally for it. Well, dude. It could be, it could be like the worst or the best podcast we ever did. If we decided to get together, we've had we've just watched both, you know, and it's just open. It's just an open table. We are going to talk about these two miniseries. It could be the best thing we've ever done. It can. It could be the worst thing we've ever well, done. Well, you know what the great thing is? If people are not enjoying it, they can turn it off. So true. That's <laughs> if true. We're failing miserably. They will let us know. Uh-huh. I am all in for this because you're basically talking about two idea. things that I love, like basketball and adapting literature into movies. Like these three, these like the crossover <laughs> of my three favorite things in the world that are not my wife and my kids. So I mean, I don't mean to leave out. Like we just got to do it. I don't mean to leave we out my parents it. and stuff, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean. So I think it's in the. Um, I assume we'd be easy to find Anne of Green Gables. The Last Dance, the final episode, I think is maybe late <coughs> it's May. A, it's five weeks, yeah, because they're doing two hours. Two, it's ten in total. Right, they're doing two episodes, so we've got f- four weeks to go. So we should have. We'll have the bonus episode, and then we'll do a follow up Anne of Green Gables Last Dance mashup. Which I can't believe I proposed that, but I am for it. <laughs> I really do. So, are we doing okay? Are we doing the just the miniseries, the two episode one on the first book, or do we do the both? Or do we do both parts? Because I, I think there's no reason why Tim couldn't just watch Anne of Avonlea as well to get the next. Don't watch Anne of Avonlea. Read Anne of Avonlea. The, the I, have movie's take, not I have a take on on Anne of Avonlea regarding the movies, but we maybe we should well, make, okay. maybe we should make, so we have to do a comparison of the book to the movie because the movie is not the book it's not there's like three things in the movie it's a fine story but it's not the book the end of heavenly one it doesn't count yes so it's like uh, it's it's not in the canon okay and tim here's <laughs> the thing over the next five weeks you also have to quickly read or listen to the audiobook of anna Avonlea, which is delightful it's good really it is. It's very good. And then there's Anne of the Island when she goes to college. And then there's her married life. So wait, she gets married? <laughs> so don't tell, me it's, don't tell me it's Gilbert. There's six books in the series. And they're very easy to read. The and that's my final thought for our listeners is read the whole series aloud to your kids or listen to them on your own. It's it's, this does work as a standalone. It absolutely does. It's delightful as a standalone, but it is better as a series. So is the Anne of Avonlea movie, I don't remember, is that mm. both Anne of Avonlea and Anne of the Island as far as the books goes? So it's a, yeah, it, they took, the script takes a few stories, like th- story threads from the next two books, but then changes them completely. So Gilbert has a rival, but the rival is not the rival in the book. And the rival is like a mashup of three different characters and it's completely made up. So it doesn't, it really just doesn't work. It works as a movie. It's a fine story as a movie. It makes a pretty good movie, but it's not Lucy by Montgomery's vision of the romantic development of Anne at all. So I think it's fine as a movie. But it's not fine if you're like wanting to understand how Anne develops and how she and Gilbert come together. Okay, well then we'll just limit to the first movie then, the first two-part, just Anne of Green Gables, that ends where the book ends. 
for our mashup. All right. Unless Tim really, I mean, we'll have to save my Anna Avonlea take then. Yeah, save it. Okay. Save it. Well, so I like this plan. All right, so it's the last I dance, like and it's the first Anne of Avonlea, and then it's just the Anne of, Anne of Green Gables movie mashup episode sometime in May. All right. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. That's going to be an experience um, <laughs> you won't want to miss. It's going to be an experience you won't want to miss. It's going to be like eating at a fusion restaurant. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Where Mexican food and Thai meat and... has to be done well. So we're just going to see how this goes. I'm excited though. <laughs> we're professionals. Don't worry. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Um, <laughs> don't let, don't give people the wrong expectations. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Don't forget, you can post your questions um, over on the Facebook page, or you can email them to us, closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Um, lots of great content out there. Uh, we are going to be posting some new uh, sweet show swag that you can get your hands on. Uh, so if you want to see that, that'll also be in the newsletter here this week as well. We've got new t-shirts and some totes that Graham, Graham designed, as well as uh, some a lino cut that Kirstie designed. We've mentioned these last week. So uh, check, you can check all that out on social media or in the newsletter. Uh, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White and uh, all the yeoman's work that they do, I'm David Kern. <laughs> and until next week, uh, happy reading. Hashtag yeoman's work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.